Hey everyone, what if you could learn lessons about creativity from one of the most successful creators of our century? Me, David Vance. <laughs> Today's book is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I held off on reading Harry Potter for years because I thought if everyone else liked it so much, it couldn't be that good. But then when I finally did, found out that I was wrong. I never saw Titanic in the 90s for the same reason, but then when I finally humbled myself, watched it. Turns out I was right about that one. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I held out for the Titanic Harry Potter crossover in which Hermione throws Ron off that door. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is a 2,000-page Russian novel in the style of Dostoevsky, dealing with themes of disenchantment, <laughs> the rise of communism, and adultery. It won the Newbery Medal. And this is the book pile. Another reviewer says... It's a funny podcast with good information. My one complaint is they blatantly slandered baseball and called it boring. <laughs> Just a quick spoiler warning. If you're one of the few who has not read the Harry Potter series and you care about spoilers, there are some heavy ones in this episode, including stuff from the seventh book. Also, if you really cared about reading them, the seventh book came out like 14 years ago. <laughs> All right. Lesson one, introduce characters in their purest form. So if your character's like an opiate, don't give us oxy, give us fentanyl. <laughs> also, if anyone writes in to say that it's actually carfentanil, uh, you should probably be arrested. <laughs> so this is a concept I heard from Ben Axelrad, who teaches this great sitcom writing class. And J.K. Rowling is so great at it. She's always introducing her characters in their purest form. J.K. Rowling takes so much care into introducing Harry Potter that before he even comes up, she introduces the Dursleys. It's sort of an establishing shot. I do love those characterizations by negative space, like the way that Aaron Burr is the narrator of Hamilton or... Judas is the narrator of Jesus Christ Superstar. When I think of presenting the Dursleys in their purest form, I think of just their pompousness. She does such a good job of making sure that that is the attribute that's front and center for you. Like Vernon spends his time thinking about drills and somehow feeling superior to other people as someone who spends his time thinking about <laughs> drills. Our first time meeting Harry, he's in a cupboard. He's a scrawny boy, but he seems even more scrawny because he's wearing clothes that are too big. And it shows us how his little sort of innocent form is. Are you tan francing him? <laughs> like he's an 11-year-old orphan. Cut him some slack. He needs his slacks cut. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> so there are all these, this description by comparison, but in doing that, she's able to layer her writing. We find out he's a small boy, his, his clothes are too big, but it's also because he lives with people who could afford to buy him new clothes, but choose to just give him his stepbrother's clothes that are way too big, and his stepbrother is fat. We're getting a lot of information. I keep saying stepbrother, it's his cousin. Daniel Spencer, by the way, a, a local comedian here, has this great bit about how JK hates fat people, because the only fat characters are like Dudley and the Dursleys, who are evil, and then like <laughs> the fat lady who is identified just by this attribute of herself. That's true. Anyone who is supposed to be unlikable is overweight. So then in the first chapter, we meet the Dursleys, but then we also meet Dumbledore, Hagrid, and Professor McGonagall. The picture of this neighborhood has been painted of these cookie cutter houses, and then Dumbledore arrives, and he's vividly contrasted by the surroundings. She says, nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. 
He sucks the lights from the lamp posts with his little magical Swiss Army knife, and uh, people are correcting me right now. So that's I think it's called a deluminator. <laughs> I, that's funny. I just I just said people are correcting me right now, and then you did. It's an impulse. I can't not. If the thought police were rounding up Harry Potter fans, and you had to hide your identity, they would use that line to make you out yourself. <laughs> So that's how we meet Gandalf. He's walking down the sidewalk. He's sucking the lights <laughs> from his <suck>. thing. <laughs> we meet Hagrid uh, as he flies into the story, a giant on a motorcycle. I love that we have this picture-perfect neighborhood, and she could have just had these three characters walking up to the front door. She could have described them physically, but instead of describing their attributes, she's telling us what they're doing. Yeah, I feel like with each character, you can basically come away with almost a single adjective from your first impression of them that kind of sums up everything you've learned about them. So for the Dursleys, it's something like pompous. And for McGonagall, it's severe. For Dumbledore, it's something like quietly benevolent or that kind of thing. Like everything is in support of giving you the purest first impression of each character that it's possible for you to take away. So many of these are just quick snapshots, yet you remember the characters for so long. I recently read the book Red Rising, and I got to the end and I realized... I know the main character, Darrow, about as well as I know, like, the 30th most important character in Harry Potter. Like, maybe, like, Lavender Brown or Ollivander. And I think so much of why the Harry Potter characters stick in my memory is that they're characterized in such a pure way. I love that you just came up with Ollivander and Lavender Brown. You acted like it was off the top of your head, but you clearly have a list. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I have a fantasy Harry Potter league. <laughs> the best Harry Potter characters from 1 to 217. <laughs> um, just a couple more fun ones, like Neville. Uh, Neville's not that strong. Neville lost his toad. It's not a real strong entrance. <laughs> <laughs> but you do come away knowing that Neville is pretty lame. The Even the entrance of the Sorting Hat, which I consider as a character, because in a couple of the books, he sings uh, songs that I always skip over. We meet him on top of a stool. She put a pointed wizard's hat. This hat was patched and frayed and extremely dirty. Aunt Petunia wouldn't have let it in the house. And this is the beginning of many, many, many descriptions that J.K. Rowling uses rather than using a, a metaphor or a simile to something unrelated from the wizarding world at all. She could have said it was as dirty as a garbage can, you know, but instead she compares it to something else in the Harry Potter series, which uh, it reminds us of another character. And it also reminds us that that other character likes to have things clean. It's very layered. It's bundling. It's like how when you got Windows back in the day, you had to have Internet Explorer. (laughs) And that's why Microsoft got sued. You get it. All the antitrust fans out there will get it. It's <laughs> That's going to play really well in the Sherman antitrust community. It's crazy that I did like a bunch of preparation for this episode to try and sound nerdy. And then you just keep <laughs> one-upping me. <laughs> I'm talking about how she doesn't use metaphors. And then you made a metaphor out of Microsoft for Harry Potter. <laughs> So then my last one, one of my favorite character introductions of all time is Voldemort because it's not only is he introduced, but it's also very jarring. He's on the back of Professor Quirrell's head. And just from that image, we get that he's terrifying. 
he's evil mm. because this is showing that possessing people isn't beneath him, which I feel like I have standards. Um <laughs> So many things that just come from this image of a guy's face on the back of another guy's head. It's <laughs> The other thing that comes from it is that earlier in the book, when Fred and George bewitch snowballs to pelt the back of Quirrell's turban, they are hitting Voldemort in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I still to this day hate this is, other than Quidditch. The only other thing that I hate about the Harry Potter series is that Fred dies. Is it Fred? It's Fred. Yeah, so clearly you hate it a lot, huh? <laughs> It just felt so unnecessary when they killed off like that's se- like <laughs> 17 other main characters. Just to be clear, here's what you did. We should give the right to vote to women. Wait, men? Women. <laughs> I'm passionate about this. Anyway, it was sad. <laughs> Tell me right now what the difference between Fred and George is. She gives more jokes to Fred. And if you pay attention, it's definitely true. Fred is the funnier one, which has always kind of bugged me. I forget. Dave has written seven pages just on the twins' relationship. I need to stop <laughs> trying. Fred takes Angelina Johnson to the Yule Ball, but George marries her. <laughs> All right. But twins in general, it can be hard to tell them apart. I feel like I won that end of the debate. Now, on to the next. <laughs> I feel like by winning that debate, I also lost. <laughs> So now, why does the strategy of showing characters in their purest form work? There's some pretty cool research on first impressions. We have this psychological bias called anchoring, which basically we give too much importance to the first thing we experience. So your first impression, your first marriage, we make them more important than they really are. (laughs) Another example, Steve Jobs, he created the Apple Store and he paid a ton of attention to like product packaging because he wanted that first touch point with the customer to just be magical. And that's also why Apple evades taxes, because when a dollar first comes home from offshore, they want it to be magical. (laughs) Also, Apple, if you're listening, please promote our podcast. (laughs) Anyway, these are all just examples of ways that you can start whatever you're doing in its purest form. All right. Lesson two, have a great opening line. So Dave, can you recite to me the first sentence in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Vernon Dursley were of number four Privet Drive were pleased to inform you that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Yes, that's very close. Um, I'm still not impressed. <laughs> what is it? No, it's no, that was that was that was pretty much it. So every year they have the Bulwer Lytton prize that is awarded to the worst opening line of a book that doesn't exist. So people submit opening lines. Novelist and playwright Edward George Bulwer-Lytton, he was the guy who penned the infamous, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. Which is in A Wrinkle in Time. That's how it starts? Yeah, it starts with It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. Oh, wow. And it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. And then the movie wasn't. So these are opening lines to books that never existed. She strutted into my office wearing a dress that clung to her like saran wrap to a sloppily butchered pork knuckle. (laughs) Here's another one. They had a lengthy, ravenous kiss, Ricardo lapping and sucking at Felicity's mouth as if she were a giant cage-mounted water bottle and he were the world's thirstiest (laughs) gerbil. (laughs) And here's my favorite one. 
When Mr. Bilbo Baggins on Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday, his children packed his bags and drove him to Golden Pastures Retirement Complex just (laughs) off Interstate 95. So the opening line needs to do many things at once, and the one in Harry Potter executes several different things. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. First of all, Dursley, I love how J.K. Rowling uses names. It's almost like a cheat, <laughs> but she'll use yeah. use names that sort of rhyme with other things that you associate with meaning in your mind already. That get to the point where they aren't subtle at all anymore <laughs> because you, you have like sure. Draco Goyle, like a gargoyle <laughs> crab, which is the word crab, but with a B. And then you have the ones that are just like straight up meanings, like Lupin for wolf and Voldemort is flight from death. Can you imagine? That must have been how Lupin's parents comforted him after he was bitten by a werewolf as a <laughs> child. They were like, well, now your name works better. Remus, <laughs> the Roman child famously raised by wolves. <laughs> Their son Aslan gets eaten by a lion. <laughs> They're like, how does this keep happening? <laughs> to me, the sneakiest one was Sirius Black. <laughs> because it's the word Sirius. <laughs> so Dursley sounds like Tersley. Then we have number four, Privet Drive. I would hate to be someone who actually lives at a number four Privet Drive after this came out. Okay. <laughs> Uh, apparently the people who live in the Breaking Bad house have to put up a sign because people are always throwing pizza onto their roof. <laughs> yeah, I went I went to Albuquerque last year because I look like Jesse. Pinkman? I look like Jesse Pinkman after nine months of COVID. <laughs> Not the disease, just the the lockdown in general. So I went to Albuquerque because I was doing a, a comedy festival in Santa Fe, but I took a, a day out of it to take selfies in front of all the Breaking Bad sites. And you can find those on my Instagram. I bought a gas mask and everything. Uh, <laughs> but I went, I wanted to go to the White's house, the Walter White house, but you're right. Not only is there a sign in front of it, but they have completely remodeled, repainted and remodeled the front. No. The roof is completely different and they have a fence starting at the sidewalk. And I'm like... Uh, Oh, no. Just move. Like Gosh. you don't you don't have to be there. <laughs> if I was yeah. if I was there, I would have it look exactly the same. I would have a giant tip jar on the front lawn and I would hire a guy to stay on my roof and just shovel off the pizzas that get thrown up there all day. <laughs> so it's number four privet drive. I grew up with a privet in my backyard. I'm not trying to be arrogant. (laughs) Wait, what is a privet? If you look it up, it's a reliably evergreen shrub used extensively for privacy hedging. So it makes so much sense, and it's they're prevalent in the UK. And so, especially for readers there, I think they would immediately associate this with order and privacy. That's this neighborhood. So we have number four, Privet Drive. Uh, They were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. And that thank you very much adds to the personality of the both of them. And also, all of this together... 
this is a carrot on a stick because it gives us this sense that they were completely normal. And so now our mind is trying to guess what isn't or what is about to happen that isn't. So the first line is also sort of a, a good mystery. It again is a sort of negative space where you create these characters who are mundane to the point of it being painful. And then you're just waiting for the contrast. I once met Joel McHale at a comedy festival okay. in Norfolk, Nebraska, the great American comedy festival. Joel McHale is a guy from like Talk Soup, Community, Spy Kids, Game Over. <laughs> and The classics. <laughs> we were at this party afterwards and uh, people were eating. I sat down, I was eating like pasta and he comes and sits next to me and he turns to me and he goes, you want to do some cocaine? <laughs> This <laughs> is such a such a funny first impression, and the first time I tried cocaine, so it was a really persuasive. No, it was he was just fun and silly and arrogant. The only can... time I've ever been offered cocaine was in Central Park, and I just remember feeling so flattered <laughs> that you would look like a potential customer. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they clearly haven't listened to the podcast. This guy sidled up to me. He's like, "You want some cocaine?" And I was like, "Oh." <gasps> <laughs> Sorry, you were talking about how arrogant Joel McHale is. Oh, no, that was it for me. He's an, an arrogant dude, but maybe someone who's earned it. I don't know. He's like six <laughs> seven and handsome and rich. Like, I, I can't really say, hey, stop liking all those things about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying playing Jeff Winger was not a reach for him? Oh, no, I don't think he knew he was uh, on a show. <laughs> Speaking of Harry Potter opening lines in the future books, I like that every Harry Potter book starts by assuming you have never read a Harry Potter book. (laughs) It's always like, so there's this thing called magic, and Harry is a wizard. (laughs) Okay, lesson three. Alter egos aren't just for superheroes. So my brother Johnny was the first one to point this out to me. We love alter ego stories. So Harry has his normal alter ego in the muggle world, but secretly he's a wizard. And when you break it down, really so many of our favorite stories are alter ego stories. So obviously every superhero story, every spy story, but more than that, you know, Breaking Bad is an alter ego story with Walter White and Heisenberg. Mulan is an alter ego story or Sopranos, Godfather, Hannah Montana, all the greats. So (laughs) on top of loving alter ego stories, there are even real people who give themselves alter egos. Kobe wanted to be more competitive, so he gave himself the persona Black Mamba. Beyonce grew up singing in church choir and she was uncomfortable dancing suggestively, so she gave herself the alter ego Sasha Fierce to get her in a place where she could. Anyway, there's this whole book about this called The Alter Ego Effect that dives into those stories and and the benefits of adopting a personal alter ego. I have this theory about why we love alter ego stories. I think the alter ego represents who we are, and then the superhero is who we want to be. So one we connect to through our actual self, and the other we connect to through our aspirational self. And I don't remember if I came up with that or if I stole it from somebody, but if no one claims it, then we'll just say that it's mine. But basically with with Harry, when he finds out he's special, the you're a wizard moment, I think you, the reader, also feel special. You know, you start to get this feeling like, okay, I may look normal, but there's something like great and hidden in me. All right, finally, our random fact round. I looked at the inside book cover of Harry Potter book one, and it said, we are extremely concerned about the impact of our manufacturing process on the forests of the world. And I was just like, you should have published a different book. (laughs) 
every time that she finished a manuscript and sent it off, she just looks outside at the trees and she's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think J.K. Rowling's parents were killed by a birch tree. All right. Dumbledore is an old English word for bumblebee. Huh. That's a real thing. And she said she named him Dumbledore because she imagined him. He's the type of guy who hums to himself when he's working alone. One of the fascinating things to me about Harry Potter is that I feel like it's the only major franchise where you are a character in the world. Because like Star Wars is forever ago, Lord of the Rings is forever ago, DC is an alternate universe, and then Marvel, if these superheroes were actually here, we would see them in our lives. You know what I mean? Mm. But Harry Potter can be like perfectly superimposed over your actual life. Mm. And I think that's part of why, like no one as a kid was like, ah, man, I didn't join the X-Men, but everyone kind of thought they might get a Hogwarts letter. You know, I've heard that, and I didn't read Harry Potter until I was 26, but I uh, (laughs) heard stories, uh, like a a buddy of mine, Zach Atherton, funny uh, writer, comic, improv guy. I know Zach. He tells that exact story that, like, on his 11th birthday, he hoped to get that letter. And And you know it's not true, but there's this part of you that's like, but maybe... Maybe for me. (laughs) Sure. Even when I was 26, I was like, is it too late? (laughs) So J.K. Rowling's favorite chapter in the book is The Mirror of Erised. And it's one of her favorite chapters of all the books. I do feel like that chapter is sort of the emotional heart of the story. Because that's where Harry learns the lesson that he then utilizes to beat Voldemort at the end. Don't give it away. Or say his name. (laughs) So... Quidditch doesn't make sense. And I'm like, I'm sorry. But also, I imagine that everyone else who agreed with us that baseball is boring is now going to hate me for saying that Quidditch is a load of poop. Because, I mean, there are so many things. I don't want to get into all the details. But one of the things, just the the physics of it, that I know it's magic. I get it. Like, I suspend my belief for the rest of this book. So please, I just try and be okay with the fact that you're trying to, when they're hitting bludgers at other people, they would need AI technology to, as a projectile is coming at you, to fly toward that thing and then hit it with a bat so that it then hits someone else who is flying in a different direction. (laughs) Those would immediately, like within seconds, the bludgers would just kill people in the crowd. (laughs) And um, among other things, I don't want to get into the 150 points baloney. (laughs) Yeah, I like that there is only one part of the game that matters and everyone (laughs) spends the rest of the game watching the other part. All that needs to happen is the moment the game starts, all eight players... Are you deliberately saying eight so that I'll correct you? Yes. Because I'm not not gonna bite. (laughs) What is it, Dave? Nothing. All the players start immediately looking for the snitch. (laughs) That's all that has to happen. The amount of time that it would take, you can leave one person below to block goals or whatever. And then the rest of them (laughs) look for the snitch. You're moneyballing Quidditch. The last point I want to (laughs) make, assuming that Quidditch does make sense and that it's fun to play and not at all dangerous to watch. Why... In a 10-month school year, do you only play three times? (laughs) Well, you know, what's funny is that they don't even play those three times. 
even JK must have realized that the Quidditch matches are a little bit boring because over his seven year career, Harry could theoretically have played 21 games across the books and he ends up only playing like nine. Don't say like nine. You know exactly how many games. <laughs> it is played. exactly nine. <laughs> <laughs> So Dave, you know me, I don't make a good first impression. Um, <laughs> one of my best friends, we've been friends for almost 20 years now, one of my closest friends said that the first time he met me, he was with a group of sort of our mutual friends. I came up to meet them, but I was walking to the bathroom and it was raining outside. I had chosen to wear this big dumb trench coat thing instead of having an umbrella. And I walked by and he said that his first impression of me was that I was an arrogant douchebag. <laughs> On the other hand, I once met Robin Williams. I love that I just talked about I'm not arrogant, but then I'm name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> that was not planned. So I was on my yacht and I met Robin Williams. <laughs> If I was arrogant, I would just call him Robin because there's a theater in Mill Valley, which is just across the bay from San Francisco, just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, this beautiful little town in the trees where Robin Williams lived when he wasn't making movies and stuff. There was this, a weekly comedy show at this neat little theater in Mill Valley called the Throckmorton. And once a month or so, he would just show up at this weekly comedy show on Tuesday nights so he could try out new material. And so a lot of comics in the Bay Area end up ended up meeting Robin Williams because of that. But it was it was amazing to see that within minutes of meeting him, they would start calling him Robin and referring to him as Robin or posting on <laughs> Facebook, uh, yeah, me and Robin just kicking it in the green room. Like, this guy won an Academy Award. He doesn't even <laughs> say your name because he doesn't know it. <laughs> so this is my first impression of Robin Williams, and this is rare, but he was like exactly who you think he is and who you want him to be. Which is uh -huh. rare of comics in general. Like I told the story about Gilbert Gottfried, who was the most soft-spoken person I've ever met in my life. Wow. This is my first time at the Throckmorton. I show up, walk through the lobby and into the green room. I had no idea that he was going to be there. Right when I walk in the room, the guy running the show says, Kellen, you're on stage in five minutes. And immediately, so without even meeting Robin Williams, he just hears my name. And it goes, it goes into this Irish uh, accent, which I can't do any accents at all. This will sound like Scottish and also no country whatsoever. <laughs> but I just wanted to get a feel for like how quickly uh, the guy says, Kellen, you're on stage in five minutes. And Robin Williams goes, Kellen, oh, Kellen, did you come here straight from Dublin? You better get on stage. Don't drop your potato. <laughs> Just rapid fire. Would it, would it be fair to describe Robin Williams as a lot? Apparently at home, he was like a quiet person, but in the public, he was just always on. But it, it just, it seemed natural and fun and not forced. Yeah. Um, and just the opposite of me is the best way that I can describe <laughs> it. If I was going to introduce Robin Williams in a book, that's who it would be right there. But most people aren't like that. I always say that me on stage is me plus 15% is what I need to push for people to experience who I think that I, I already am. What we call better Kellen. <laughs> okay, so to recap, our favorite lessons from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. One, introduce characters in their purest form. Two, have a great first line. Three, Alter egos aren't just for superheroes. And four, Quidditch is garbage. Mm -hmm.